Well, this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 10. And just to remind you, we're in this moment or this train of thought that Paul is working out. He's already gone through uh, the basics of the gospel in Romans chapters 1 through 5. And then he's been answering these tough questions that the gospel raises about whether we should continue in holiness after we've come to faith in Christ or whether we even have to live by the law anymore. Uh, what do we do about suffering? And so we got to, over the course of pe- uh, chapter 7 and 8, we looked at uh, how we can have hope in suffering and the fact that God keeps His promises. And we can, we can rest assured that even though we face difficulties of many kinds, we face temptation, we face uh, ailments, we face persecution, we face all these things, even though we go through all of that, that God is still faithful, that He keeps His promises to us, and that He has promised that He will bring about our salvation and our resurrection. Well, that's all great and fine and good, but there's a glaring problem, especially if you're a good Jew or you're a good student of the Old Testament, there's a glaring problem with what Paul has said. And that is that the Jews, in in Paul's day and even to this day, the Jews in large measure have not turned to faith in the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. They haven't turned to Jesus in large numbers. Now, even this day, there are great movements in the Jewish community, uh, particularly there's the uh, Jews for Jesus movement and several other messianic Jewish communities that believe in Jesus as the Messiah and have trusted in Him. But in large measure, the Jews as a group of people, as a race, have not turned to Jesus in faith. And so that begs the question, okay, Paul, you say that we can hope in suffering. Well, what about the Jews? God didn't keep His, doesn't, or should say, it doesn't seem that God has kept His promise to the Jews. So how can we rest assured that he will keep his promises to us? So Paul's first answer to that problem is to say that they are not all descend they are not all of Israel who are descended from Israel. And so in chapter 9, he explained that there's a distinction between the children of the promise and the children of descendant. So uh, just because you are a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you are of the chosen people of God. That the true Israelites are distinguished by faith. That the true Israelites are those who have trusted in the promises of God. They are the ones who are considered to be of Israel. And this distinction, according to Paul, wasn't made by human will or exertion, but by God's free purpose of grace. So Paul ended that thought in the last few verses of chapter 9 by saying that the Gentiles have received the righteousness of God, while the Jews have, in large measure, been rejected because they did not receive the righteousness of God through faith. And I can't express... And I want you to catch just how uh, I'll try to express just how significant and how revolutionary this concept is, particularly in Paul's day. And uh, the fact that, you know, the fact that we just assume 
that you can choose to be of any religion that you want, that you can choose as a Gentile to follow Jesus, that is a revolutionary idea for Paul's day. Because in Paul's day, you, weren't, you didn't decide what religion you were going to be. And in many parts of the world today, you don't decide what religion you're going to be. You were born into the religion that you held. And the religion of your family, the religion of your race, or the religion of your nation was so tightly tied to your culture that you were just it was just assumed that you would be that. You didn't have any other option. Or, or if you weren't born into it, you were brought into it by conquest or by slavery. So if you were a Greek, you worship the Greek pantheon. So you worship Zeus and Athena and all the rest of those gods. If you were an Egyptian, then you worship Ra and Osiris and Horus and all of the rest of them. And if you were a Jew, then you worshiped Yahweh. Religion was such an integral part of one's cultural identity that it was assumed that if a nation lost in battle, that it wasn't just that the nation lost, but that their gods lost. That the gods of the victorious nation had defeated the gods of the losing nation. That's why many of the, this is kind of lost on us, but the significance of all those Old Testament stories of God's victory over Egypt and His victory over Canaan, those are significant because what they are telegraphing to us is that God is not limited to a region. He's not limited to this little country of Judah or this little country of uh, Israel. He's not limited in space and time and people. He is the God of the universe. And so he can take a little bitty nation and he can conquer great nations with that nation because he is the God over all people. And he can be with the nation of Israel even in exile because he's not lost or he hasn't disappeared when they're taken to Babylon or to Persia. He is still the God of the universe. So if that is the case, and we're not, and God is not restricted to a particular time and place or people, then how is it that we know who the people of God are? If the people of God are not marked out by their skin color or their dress or their language, how do they stand out? And so to answer that question, let's read Romans chapter 10 together. And again, like we did last time, we're going to have to take this whole chapter to understand the point that Paul's making. So let's read together Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 1. God's Word says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, 
or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to hear of him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that he, what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So from this passage, I want to look at two points this morning. First, I want you to see the mark of the elect. And second, I want you to see the means for reaching them. So first, the mark of the elect. And second, the means for reaching them. So first, let's consider the mark of the elect in verses 1 through 13. So Paul starts by turning back to a point that he's made multiple times in the book of Romans so far. And remember, we've talked about there being two ways of righteousness. One way of righteousness is to pursue moral purity through total obedience to the law. That you set out from the time that you know of God and the time that you know of obedience to the law and you set out to live in purity and in holiness. And there's some significant problems with this way of righteousness. Paul's going to list three right here. First of all, in verse 4, he points out that the one who would seek to live in righteousness to the law is obligated to keep every dot and every tittle of it. Failure in one part, even the smallest of parts, is a failure of all of it. So I don't know if you're a Jerry Clower fan, but Jerry Clower tells the story of coon hunting with John Eubanks. And he says that John Eubanks is this great conservationist. And he didn't believe in taking a gun with him when he went coon hunting because he wanted to give the coon a fighting chance. And so the coon always had an option that he could jump out of that tree and whoop all them dogs and walk off if he wanted to. And that's kind of the same option you have as a person that sets out to be obedient to the law. 
You can jump out of the tree and whoop all them dogs if you want to. But nobody's done it yet. Okay, so the the point of that Paul is making here is that if you are going to be completely obedient to the law, then you have to be obedient to it in every point that you must, as Paul says here, live by it. You must do everything in it. Second, in verses six through eight, he quotes a warning from Moses that he gave back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 13. And there, Moses warns the nation of Israel that they shouldn't try to find their righteousness by pulling it down from heaven or finding it across the sea. So this warning is set against two tendencies that humanity has always had in pursuing salvation. One tendency is to pursue salvation by becoming gods ourselves. So this is the sin of Adam and Eve. It's the sin of the, na- of the people of uh, uh, the days before the flood. And it's the sin of the people of the Tower of Babel. It's also the sin of many people in our own society today. Many people pursue immortality. They pursue salvation through an obsession with health. You know, they might think, hey, if I just take the right medicine, if I just do the right workout program, if I just eat the right foods that I don't have to worry about all the health problems and the ailments and the, and the death that everybody else worries about. But I hate to tell you, death has a 100% mortality rate. It will come for everybody, okay? No matter what health program you go through, no matter what you think of the medicine you take, you will still face death. Many people pursue salvation through power and they think you know if i just get enough influence and gain enough a reputation if i gain enough power in this world then i won't face judgment or death as a result of that and then lastly we often pursue uh in conjunction a lot of times with power we pursue salvation through wealth and we think that money and uh, savings and retirement benefits and all of that will somehow keep us from death and from the judgment of God. But whether we try to pull down God from heaven or not, there is no salvation found in bringing ourselves up to God. The second tendency is to pursue salvation through worldly wisdom. So when Paul and Moses warn about descending to the abyss, or as Moses puts it, crossing the sea, the idea is crossing the sea to find wisdom in foreign lands. So the Israelites did this by adopting the practices of the nations around them. They, they went to the soothsayers to get answers for their, problem, their daily problems. They went to the uh, Asherah poles to get fertility blessings. They went and did all the things that the nations around them were doing because they didn't trust in God that was right in front of them. And we do this today through an obsession with every other religion under the face of the sun. And so we don't pursue the wisdom of God. We pursue the wisdom of some Eastern mystical religion, or we have crystals, or we, uh, not crystals, the food, crystals, the crystals. Uh, We pursue uh, the horoscope or manifesting. We pursue some other means of wisdom apart from. From God. And those ways of righteousness will ultimately fail us. 
We cannot be totally obedient to the law. And no matter how much help we get from a guru or a crystal or some worldly wisdom, it will not change that fact. But there is another way. It's a way, as Moses puts it, puts it that is on the tip of our tongue and in the heart. And that way is the way of faith. So, in verses 9 and 10, Paul gives the true mark of the elect. The true mark of who the chosen people of God are. The way that we know who those people are is not by their skin color. It's not by their ethnicity. It's by their faith. And that faith is evident in two ways. First, it's evident because those who have faith will confess it with their mouths. Now, I want you to hear me loud and clear on this. True saving faith is a faith that confesses to men. True saving faith is a faith that confesses Jesus Christ to other people. True saving faith is a faith that is unashamed of the gospel. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, if you acknowledge me before men, then what? I will acknowledge you before my Father who is in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. It is not enough to think, you know, me and Jesus, we're okay. And then never make that belief known. That is not a faith that will save you. Friend, let me warn you here. You cannot hold on to that pew with white knuckle grip week after week, month after month, year after year, invitation after invitation, and assume that because you were among people who had faith and because you gave a head nod to Jesus, that you will somehow be accepted before Him in heaven. Second, those who are marked out by God are those who believe in their hearts. Now, the word believe here means to trust or to rest in. It's the same root word, actually, as faith. So understand, this is not faith in the modern sense. So nowadays, people think of faith as just positive thinking. If I believe long enough, if I believe hard enough, then good things will happen. In fact, that's, that's where I referenced manifesting now. That's very popular with the young people today. I have to say that now because I'm not a young person anymore. But but uh, but that's very popular with young people today is to say if I if I think hard enough about it, I can manifest it. I can make myself look better just by thinking hard enough about looking better. I don't know if that's ever worked for anybody, but good luck. Um, <laughs> but the but it's not the idea of of uh, believing hard enough or thinking good thoughts. Biblical faith is faith that rests in someone else. So Paul says that God's elect are marked out because they believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. True believers place all their chips on the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead and what that means for them in their own salvation. Saving faith 
isn't liking some good teachings of Jesus. It's not saving faith is not knowing some stories about Jesus. Saving faith is not even thinking, you know, Jesus was a good teacher. I like some things that he had to say. Saving faith is believing the most scandalous claims of the gospel that Jesus rose again and that you will too. That is what it means to believe. Notice what this saving faith means for those who have it. So twice, Paul says that those who confess and believe will be saved. And if we read this, it seems kind of redundant. You know, why did you have to say it twice, Paul? But he does something in the Greek that we miss in our English translations. And I thought this was beautiful as I was doing my study. So I want to point it out. He uses two different words that we translate as saved. First, in verse 9, he says that those who confess and believe will be, the Greek word is sozo, which is a verb that means to protect or preserve or make well. So one aspect of salvation for those who have faith is that God will preserve us, He will restore us, He will make us well. So God is going to make us whole through faith by the new life that he brings to our souls, and ultimately by the resurrection of our bodies. But then in verse 10, he says that when we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, we will be saved. And there he uses the word soteria, which is a noun that means the delivered ones or the saved ones. So when we believe and confess... We're not only made whole through God's spirit and the future resurrection, but God includes us in a great throng of all of those who have been saved by grace through faith. We are now through faith. We are members of God's elect. We are members of his church. We are adopted sons and daughters. So in verses 11 through 13, we see how this mark plays out for the whole of humanity. Paul says that the mark of salvation is available to everyone, regardless of their background, regardless of their race, regardless of what language they speak, regardless of where they come from. The gospel of Jesus Christ is available to everyone without distinction. When God saves... He does not distinguish between Jew and Greek. He doesn't make a distinction between black and white. He doesn't show preference for men over women or for children over adults or for rich over poor. No, everyone on this earth is saved through the same way, through faith in Jesus Christ. And that brings me to my second point, which is the means of reaching the elect. Paul says in verse 14, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? If God makes no I'm sorry, no distinction between Jew and Greek or between if we want to hold a modern way of thinking about that, between American and Chinese, and everyone can be saved through believing and confessing regardless of their heritage, then there is only one barrier to their salvation. They 
need to hear the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. They need someone to preach to them. Now, when you read that word preach, you might be thinking, all right, pastor, get to it. What you waiting on? But the word preach there means to proclaim or to herald. It's not speaking of the position of pastor or preacher there, but of anyone who announces the good news of the gospel. So the only way that people can be marked out as part of the people of God is if we take the message of the gospel to them. And Paul gives us a great promise in verse 17. And this is a, I think you ought to memorize this verse. Verse 17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. In other words, faith doesn't come from your eloquence and it doesn't come from your ability to make a logical argument for God's existence. God uses the gospel message that is simply and plainly taught to bring people to faith in Christ. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Paul doesn't say your education is the power of God unto, unto salvation. Paul doesn't say your mastery of the English language is the, God, is the power of God unto salvation. He says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And here he doesn't say that those things are the way that people come to faith in Christ either. He says that it is the word of Christ. When people hear it, God uses that to bring about faith in them. So brothers and sisters, we have a job to do. The way of salvation is open to all people. No one is outside of the reach of the gospel. Yet they will not believe unless they hear. And they will not hear unless we proclaim and we send. So let us commit ourselves today to that very duty. Let us leave this place ready to proclaim the gospel to those who need to hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Gospel. Lord, we thank You that we, at the very right time, were brought near to You through the proclamation of that Gospel. Lord, we thank You for faith and for the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for boldness for these Your people, that as we leave this place, that we would not be ashamed of the Gospel, but we would believe it to be the power of God that it is. Lord, as we come in contact with people who do not know you, that we would have gospel conversations with them, that we would share the power of the gospel to them, and that we would trust that it is not any power in us that would bring about their conversion, but it is your power working through that simple word of Christ that would bring them to faith. Father, give us uh, boldness, give us urgency to go forth from this place and share because we know that they will not believe unless they hear, and they will not hear unless we speak it. 
Father, I pray that you would bless us now as we continue to worship. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.